Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Joining me once again, we have my Pandemic Movie Club buddy, good friend, Travis Woods, who's a very talented essayist. I love his work with Brightwall Darkroom. He also does film commentary tracks. He did one for a new box set uh, involving an actor that we're going to be talking about today. He's also, right now, working on a book on the vision and movies of director Brian De Palma. So I'm so excited, always so proud and ready to read his latest opus. So Travis, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing? Oh, I'm fine as fiddlesticks, Jen. Thanks for asking. Um, I will have to correct you on one thing. I do a lot of film commentaries, although I did not do one for uh, this bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia box set. I did a, a, a video essay. A video essay. I yes. just don't want to steal anybody's thunder because there are like four great film commentary tracks on okay. that. Uh, I'll be a whore and say it at the top. The the bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia box set by Imprint Films. Uh, but yeah, I do a, a fun little visual essay on there, which still allows me to be a chatterbox, which is yeah, is really it's all it's all that's all that matters, Jen is. Someone it does. Else. And you just did a commentary track because our good friend Sean Cosby was raving about it on Twitter. Was it for After Dark, My Sweet? Oh, yes. Uh, a film I've gone on at length about on this very podcast. Yes. Um, and uh, in our movie club, which was yes, last. Yes. Yeah. I, I, uh, don't want to don't want to get distracted. Don't distract me, Jen, because I'll do a tight 90 <laughs> minutes right now on uh, After Dark, My Sweet, the greatest neo-noir, not only of the 1990s, but maybe of all time. Uh, but yeah, I, John, our buddy, was very nice to say some very sweet things about that commentary track, as um, as has our buddy Jordan Harper. They've both been yes. very, very kind to me as I as I blather on about uh, crime fiction and neo-noir. Well, you deserve it. You work really hard, and I always look forward to your insights. So, Bless your little heart. Thank you for saying so. Of course. And you were the podcaster behind Increment Vice. Our buddy Blake Howard was the producer, but this was your vision. You were the host. I loved all of the intros and the way that you discussed your love of this movie, uh, Inherent Vice, the Paul Thomas Anderson film. So. You recently got to host a screening of Inherent Vice. Tell me about that. Well, yeah, um, my life is seemingly riddled uh, with a long daisy chain of folks who are more than willing to uh, support and engage with my, you know, obsessiveness uh, to kind of an unhealthy degree. And yeah, our (laughs) our buddy Blake couple years back uh he let me uh kick off a podcast on his podcasting network network excuse me uh increment vice where we talk to a whole host of cool ass people about inherent vice folks like uh paul thomas anderson himself and and, uh ryan johnson and just about every single crime fiction author uh i know uh or i'm a fan of and yeah uh in honor of that uh Years later, uh, this summer, 
the wonderful American Cinematheque put on a cool, cool ass little film festival called Friend of the Fest, in which they allowed uh, they they selected a group of of film uh, film based podcasters to program a film fest, and uh, Blake was the only person that had two podcasts at yeah. this thing, which opened up with uh, he and the great Katie Walsh introducing a screening of Michael Mann's theatrical cut, the superior theatrical cut of Miami Vice in honor of their podcast, Miami Nice. And uh, that Saturday night, uh, Blake and I hosted the screening of Inherit Vice in honor of Increment Vice. And it was a lot of fun. Um, I handed out frozen chocolate-covered bananas to anyone who wanted them in line. Very um, cool. And basically uh, had blacked out on stage um, and jibber-jabbered on for like 10 minutes. I'm not sure. I don't remember what I said. <laughs> and it was a lot of fun. It was a blast. Um, it's always That's fun awesome. to, again, like I said, um, so many people seem to be willing to engender my obsessiveness and support it. Uh, yes. And, uh, yeah, you were Should doing I the same. tell you something? Mm. That I was kind of hoping to be there. I didn't want to get everyone's hopes up because I wound up having a health scare. But I was hoping to come back to L.A. Travis is one of my L.A. buddies that I love seeing when I go there. At the end of August, I was hoping to check out Miami Vice and Inherent Vice, um, you know, back to back that week and go to a concert. So that was my plan. I wound up having a little bit of a health scare, but I'm looking forward to coming back to L.A. pretty soon to hang out with Travis and hopefully his great dog, Kobe, this time. But I do want to say, of course, we love you and we wanted to support you. And I was so bummed that I did not get to go but I loved seeing all the the photos and hearing how great it went so congrats man that's awesome well goodness gracious I'm going to dab a tear from my eye thank you for saying <laughs> so Jen sorry that you couldn't come out I um, know next time you host something cool I'll do that yeah <laughs> you know Blake was very sad that he couldn't come out too yeah so you're you're in good company um, yes uh, yeah. But I'm glad you're Maybe feeling better. Maybe next summer. Yeah, we'll be there for Midnight Run. Who knows? Yeah. Listen, if someone will let me, I will project Inherent Vice on the side of a gas station. Like, okay. I don't need a theater. Yeah. Uh, I will I will play that thing anywhere, anytime for anyone who wants to watch it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, hey, I'm, you know, I'm glad you're feeling better. And I'm not going to hold it against you that you didn't come <laughs> to my special little party. Um, I know, right? Yes. But you, you are making it up to me. By, yeah, throw in another one. By, this is uh, full circle here because the first time you were on my show, you did a great little aside about Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. And I will never forget it because my friends and family, people I know in real life, don't often listen to the pod because they get enough of me talking about movies. But my mom actually listened to that episode and she just fell in love with you. She's like, Travis is great. Aww. And then at the end, she's like, should I watch Bring Me the Head of Elfrey? And I'm like, you could probably Whoa. handle it. But no, she's like, I'm sure you, I saw it back then. But you might want to <laughs> give yeah. mom a couple couple trigger warnings for that yes, one. Exactly. Um, 
But and you're I'm very not, convincing, I, very funny and persuasive. And yeah, she also enjoyed that you sort of get good naturally give me a hard time sometimes. Like you were going, you know, God damn it, Jen, we adore you, but no. And stuff I think like you, that. Yeah, I think you sassed Peckinpah or or, or <laughs> Alfredo Garcia yeah. or something and came in hot. I got a little hot. Uh, calm down, <laughs> though. I'm sorry your mom had to hear that. Um, oh, no, she got a kick out of it. Yeah. Uh, well, if she's listening, hi. Hi, mom. Yeah. There you uh, go. But, um, you know, not to make you feel a little less special uh, when you mentioned that I went on a uh, a jagged or discursive uh, bring me the head of Alfredo, Alfredo Garcia aside while we were talking about other things. Mm-hmm. I have to tell you, I probably do that with just about everybody. I'm, yeah. I'm sure that there's people that have left parties that have been like, who is that annoying guy with the curly hair <laughs> that just like cornered me for an hour about this? 1974 Sam Peckinpah movie about a head yeah. and uh, checkout uh, line at the gas station. Yeah, I mean, like, that's just uh, your your mo. Uh, yeah. This is just you know uh, you know if I panic and I don't have anything to say, I'll just start uh, monologuing to people about uh, Sam Peckinpah self, uh, cinematic self portraits. But we're getting yeah. ahead of ourselves. We, we are, are coming full circle in that we are coming back to my favorite actor of all time. We're going to talk today about my favorite actor of all time. One of the the greatest artists to ever do it in the medium of cinema. And his name, the guy we're talking about, is the late, the great Warren Mercer Oates. The greatest actor who ever lived. I will accept no substitutes. I will hear no backsass on the subject. He is simply (laughs) the best there ever is and ever will have been. I love him so, so much. and I'm so excited to talk about him today. Yes, my favorite quote about Warren Oates came from Richard Linklater, who gave 16 Um, reasons why viewers should love the movie Tulane Blacktop. And the sixth was because there was once a god who walked the earth named Warren Oates. So tell me about when you first discovered Warren. Do you remember the film that did it for you? And just why he is so compelling, do you think, on screen? Because he really is. He's amazing. Let's see. God, uh, the first time I discovered Warren Oates, I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's usually when you'll discover something, you'll, you'll discover it twice. You'll discover like mm-hmm. the iteration of it that you see when you're like a kid. And then the iteration yep. you see maybe when you're a teenager or a young adult. And the, so that, you know, the first time I saw, uh, Warren Oates was probably when I was a little kid watching, uh, the Bill Murray movie Stripes. Same. Uh, where he played uh, Sergeant Hulka, and yep. in a very uh, kind kind of a an outlier performance for him, um, uh, he's not quite the Warren Oates you think of uh, yeah. when you think of Warren Oates. He's a little heavier, a little older. Definitely playing, you know, the straight laced heavy in that movie. But he's a lot of fun, really great. And there was something I remember even as a kid. There was something about him the the crooked smile. Uh, and these eyes kind of alight with mischief, even though he's playing, you know, the uh, straight lace sergeant that gives Bill Murray and the rest of the slobs uh, hell throughout the film. But th- that that's probably the first time I saw him uh, in my life. But the first time I saw him as, you know, maybe a more a more conscious uh, appreciator of movies, was, it would have to have been I don't know, like 12 or 13 when my dad sat my sat sat me down and was like, "You're gonna watch the fucking Wild Bunch, and you're gonna love." It. <laughs> and um, you know, my dad's a big Western guy, and we'd been mm-hmm. working our way through 
uh, Westerns since I'd been about 10. And, you know, he was giving me the whole education, um, you know, beginning with the the early roughshod black and whites. And we were working our way up. And he's like, okay, now it's time. It's time. It's time now. And um, he showed me the Wild Bunch. And uh, I could not take my eyes off of this weird, scrawny, lanky, rangy dude uh with a gigantic smile it turns out mm-hmm. that was that was Warren Oates uh, who plays you know he's a he's a smaller uh you know he's a support member yeah. of the wild bunch and uh but that was the first time I saw him and I was just like well this this guy was interesting and he became one of those guys you know once you really start getting into movies and you you go back and you start giving yourself an education uh especially if you're watching films of the the late 60s and 70s he was this guy that just kept popping up You'd yeah. see this face. You just see this face. And the more I would watch these movies with, with our pal Warren, the more I would realize when he was on screen, I wasn't thinking of anything else. I couldn't do anything else. Uh, yep. I was Your so focused right him. on him. Mm-hmm. And then I also noticed that when he wasn't on screen, because he often played yes, you know, supporting, supporting roles, mm-hmm. uh, when he wasn't on screen, I was a little bored or I'd be a little sad or I'd be like, I wonder when that guy's coming back. Mm-hmm. And, um, and listen, also, you know, there are very few curly haired heroes out there in the world. I'll take in role models. I'll take who I can get. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just became really fascinated with him. And then, oh God, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago or, or even earlier than that. Cause it was, God, it was earlier. I'm going to age, I'm going to date myself. It was earlier than that. Cause it was VHS. Um, I saw bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia, which we'll talk about later mm-hmm. on today um but that is just a visceral and vicious and lacerating portrait of self-loathing yes. uh, and romance and love and duty and honor and sadness and melancholy and regret and all of these things and it uh and it's such an excoriating self-portrait by its director sam peckinpah that just kind of rewired my brain when i watched it and mm-hmm. it sent me back on a very self-conscious journey where I was like, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to watch as many movies I can find with this guy, this Warren Oates guy. And I did that in college and I've been doing it ever since and just rewatching, rewatching those movies. And when you gave me an opportunity to come on your show, I knew I wanted to talk about Warren Oates. And um, there are so many films to talk about. There are so many things to talk about with Warren. Uh, you know, we had to limit this because you don't have uh, 46 to 50 hours or so straight mm-hmm. to talk to me about him. So we decided uh, we're going to limit it to the 1970s. Yeah. Uh, because I do think that for the most part, that is when uh, Warren did his best and most iconic work. And we are going to then, even then, there was so much to talk about in the 70s. We're going to limit it to the first half of the 70s. And even then, we are going to limit it to just five favorites from the early 1970s, because the man's uh, uh, his filmography is a treasure trove. And uh, if you don't set these kind of limitations, uh, you're going to end up being here all day because we're just going to keep skipping from movie to movie to movie because they're all so fucking fantastic. Yeah. So, like, we didn't instead, even choose Badlands, for example, because that could be his whole. You know, I mean, he has a very small, a small very role in there, small but he's so yep. he's so real, and oh, mm-hmm. the, oh, the way he holds the cigarette uh, holder in his yes. mouth as he's painting, and he's pissed off at Hit Brothers. Mm-hmm. Oh boy, see, we're doing it right now. I'm going to do a whole thing on uh, on Badlands. Um, 
Uh, but yeah. yeah, so this I, might be I, a series, I, Travis, is what we're saying. I'll like, come back. I'll come back for Warren. Yeah, I always all come these back other for Warren. movies. Yeah, but well, um, I, was I just want to say I love him. Yeah, I love him. He's my favorite actor because, uh, you, you know, I should explain why I'm so obsessed with him. Um, there's just something about him. I've said this before. Uh, he he had a he has an unusual look. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, Kind of an ugly, beautiful look. He's got that Bogart thing. Um, he's got that Bogart kind of face that's both cool and sad and funny and attractive and unattractive and cutting and inviting and insecure. Uh, he 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 looked the way I imagine we all feel on our worst days, but he acted with a grace and a warmth and a humanity that we only fleetingly achieve on our best days. Um, you know, uh, there's a, you mentioned, uh, that great line by Linklater about him. You know, there once was a God who walked the earth, whose name was Warren Oates. Um, the great, the great, 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 great writer, Kim Morgan wrote something about him once, uh, for the fourth, uh, the film, uh, the hired hand, which we're going to talk about today, yes. uh, where she noted that he is dark haired and soulful but wily and with a toothy grin and crinkly smile that can veer from loving laughter to murder ballad darkness. Or yeah. as Warren Oates put it, he has a face like two miles of country road. Um, there is a, but there's something about it. Like this week I was watching a lot of these movies back to back and I've always, you know, gravitated to him when I saw him in the past, but you know, setting out and kind of going on a Warren Oates marathon, I posted that I was like developing a monster crush on Warren Oates because there is something enigmatic and beautiful and maddening and weird and just great about him on screen. I love character actors from this era and people with real faces. I love that you brought up Bogart because I think that is um, a good comparison. Um, John Milius said that he wrote everything for Warren Oates. That yeah, he wrote everything. Person. Everything he wrote was for Warren. Yes. I mean, he thought like John Wayne was the guy, but he said, I wrote everything for Warren Oates. There's a little bit of Wayne in him, but maybe a little more uh, realism than Wayne would bring to the movies. You never really forgot you were watching Wayne, whereas Warren Oates was able to kind of go from film to film and disappear into these roles and make these men just interesting. And I think it really starts with the first movie we're going to talk about, Tulane Blacktop, which is great. I'm kind of going through a little bit of a Pontiac um, obsession because this is around the same time I started for a good friend, uh, Priscilla Page, watching Rockford Files. And I remembered some of the reruns as a kid. But anyway, I'm starting that one over and getting very obsessed with uh, Jim Rockford, Jim Garner and that Pontiac Firebird, and then you watch Tulane Blacktop again, and there's Warren Oates as the as GTO. So talk to me about this movie. Well, uh, a bit of background on this movie. Um, so it's directed by the, the also great and unfortunately late uh, Monty Hellman. Yes. And uh, they, they had worked together on another film, uh, The Shooting, which was one of uh, the first times uh, Oates Nicholson. had been given a lead role. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he played the, the, the lead, the lead role in that. And you gotta say, like, um, uh, it's saying something that, uh, a very young 
uh, Warren Oates could somehow manage to outshine both Nicholson and Millie Perkins in a, in a in a western. Uh, that's hard to do, and he and he did it in that film. But um, I will say, I want to say one other thing really quick before we deep dive into this film in specific. Oh, you you wrote that, or you you mentioned that uh, the Millius wrote. Uh, he wrote everything. He's like, oh, you know, mm-hmm. we're all, all probably not Conan, but he wrote just about everything else for uh, you know Warren Oates. Uh, and he always had him in mind when he was writing characters. And I think that uh, filmmakers really, they they got Warren Oates, even if mainstream audiences didn't entirely. Filmmakers got Oates. They recognized this violent sensitivity that he had. Yes. Um, like he said, in the 50s, he started out on all of those Western shows playing like the third bad guy. And mm-hmm. worked his way up to the first and it's like yeah. there's a charisma that can't be denied yeah exactly i mean there's a there's another great film of his he did with lee marvin called barquero where lee marvin's the good guy basic it's a western and lee marvin basically plays the good guy and warren Oates plays the <laughs> bad guy and the bad guy's this the absolute murderous psychopath but you kind of like him more than you like lee marvin because lee marvin's being all steely and cold as lee marvin does um uh, or excuse me, Lee Marvin, my God, uh, Lee Van Cleef. I got my Lees mixed and matched. Uh, Lee Van Cleef plays the good guy and uh, 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 Warren Oates plays the bad guy. And uh, you kind of still root for Warren to beat Lee Van Cleef because he's Warren. He's, he's so he's like I said, there's a violent sensitivity about him or um, Donnie Fritz, who played one of the two bikers in Alfredo Garcia. And he played a mask stick up man in Cockfighter. He once said that uh, Oates was funky. He was a gentleman with an edge. And um, that's 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 Warren and directors and filmmakers recognized that and they wanted that in their films. I just want to for those who might not be in the know about our main man, Warren, I just want to really quickly, since we're talking about how Monty Hellman brought him back mm-hmm. for Tulane Blacktop, I wanted to mention some of the names of the filmmakers that had to work with Warren Oates, that wanted to work with Warren Oates, Sam Peckinpah, four times. Yeah. Uh, early Western director Burt Kennedy four times. Monty Hellman three times. Terrence fucking Malick twice. Steven Spielberg, William Friedkin, Frank Perry, John Milius, Peter Fonda, Bud Bedecker, Norman Jewison, Ivan Reitman. Um, these are all directors who wanted uh, uh, Oates in their work. Uh, Friedkin almost got him twice. He almost uh, uh, when Steve McQueen said no to Sorcerer, uh, he almost got Oates to star in sorcerer and i kind of want to live in that that alternate universe Uh, as much as i love roy scheider and what he did in that film that would have been interesting perfect i'm very curious about a a warren oates top lined uh sorcerer but all that said that is why uh after his great performance in uh the in uh monty hellman's the shooting hellman got brought him back for tulane blacktop which is basically like it's uh this weird existential film. It's like a racing for Godot. And um, you've got these, uh, these two guys uh, uh, who are drag racers. They just kind of kind of drift around the country uh, getting into drag races. Uh, uh, this film is like this weird uh, purgatorial portrait of late sixties, early 70s america it's like a, a, a martin haydegger for gearheads and hippies this yeah this ontological nightmare in the art of motorcycle yeah, except it's and, cars but it's dark 
Yeah, and it's this, this and it's ontological mm-hmm. American nightmare portrait uh, of, of of purgatory, uh, where the yeah, screams of everyone there. they can't get off the road. Mm-hmm. They can't, and and their you know their screams are just kind of silenced by the roars of uh, big block four fifty fours with aluminum heads, and yeah. um, and the cast. That kind of... I mean, you've got James Taylor and Dennis Wilson as your stars, and then you have Warren Oates. Yep. Yeah, they will see because uh, and what I love about this movie, and this will make sense hopefully in a second, is Warren Oates purposefully. Pulls off the trick of may, of uh, of making he makes driving a 1970 Pontiac GTO uncool and sad. Now you would think that driving that car would make you the coolest motherfucker in the universe, which Warren Oates I think ultimately was. But he's playing in this film. You know, he's he he falls in with these two these two gearheads, these two guys that just kind of wander around the country endlessly, getting into drag races. That is their life, um, and they have committed to it. It's like. It, this existential world in which nothing matters. So they find something that uh, that excites them and they just do it over and over and over and over again. And the car uh, is a facade. It's like a yeah. gorgeous car and you think it should bring you kind of the empty consumerist uh, thing, but also it's part of their soul. Like it, what is driving yeah, them? Well, mm-hmm. yeah, his car. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the, the two boys, they drive this this beat up old 1955 yes. Chevy 150 that's they you know kind together, of hideous yeah. on the outside but it you can't beat it you can't beat it nope. in a race and anyway um he, they they just keep bumping into him on the road mm-hmm. and uh he he seems to be this bizarrely lost soul um yeah. and every person he encounters because he's always picking up hitchhikers you know uh, Boach mm-hmm. described this character once as he's the guy in the bar waiting for someone to walk in that he can buy a drink and just start yep. talking to like he's, de- he's deeply lonely and there's a kind of emptiness to him uh, you get this sense that um, there is no, he has no sense of self. That while all, of, while the, um, while Dennis Wilson and James Taylor are crisscrossing the country in what, what at first seems like this, this, this meaningless death drive of theirs, it's like no, in that very kind of haydiggery way, they are, they are finding purpose and meaninglessness, um, and they are committing to it. Uh, how even if the the actual commitment itself is meaningless, whereas Oates seems to be lost in that same purgatory, but he has no idea who he is or what he wants, and so he buys the flashiest car in the world, the GT, the Pontiac GTO, a uh, bright yellow, uh, begging for attention, uh, and yet he seems to he has nowhere to go with it. He doesn't have any races to be in. He doesn't have any um, uh, he. He's kind of like uh, the Joker in that he has like multiple origin stories. Every person he meets, he tells them a different story about where he came from and who he is and what he does. And only once does he he let the mask fall for a second where he tells he's trying to tell a hippie that his wife and his children left him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you get the sense that something horrible has happened to him. And he's just wandering the country looking for someone to take him in. Mm-hmm. As these two drag racers do, where they they agree to race across the country, and whoever gets to a certain destination of Washington D.C. first gets to win both of their cars, and then the film just becomes this ambling road journey, this stop-start road journey, where the race no longer seems to be the point, and uh, he continually tries on different personalities and backstories. The way he changes uh, audio tapes and sweaters every day in his car and 
the thing about this performance that I love is that in almost anyone else's hands, you would, I think, come to really loathe this character because of how annoying this character is. Um, he seems clingy. He seems desperate. He's he's a hanger on kind of. Yeah. yeah. But not with Warren. There's there's a sad like a sadness and a this man has been through stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, he imbues this character, like I said, with that violent sensitivity. Mm-hmm. Um, I think originally the character was going to be played by Bruce Dern. And as much as I love Bruce Dern, I think Dern is a god who walks among us. I think that there would have been almost too, there would have been too much edge to his performance. And I think he would have brought out the unlikability in GTO. Whereas, yeah, it would have been King of Marvin Gardens a little. Yeah, whereas mm-hmm. Oates brings out this immense sadness yes and uh melancholy about this he's a loser who's someone he, he's fan his family has abandoned him mm-hmm. and you you know he, he 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 hints that he worked at a tv station and he lost everything and so in this weird surreal existential nightmare he is someone who just he bought a car he bought some flashy clothes and he's just getting on the road hoping that life happens to him and yeah. the kind of the sadness of that is you get the you get the sense that the 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 two other fellas they know that life is not going to happen to them that life doesn't happen that there is no life there is nothing um not to start sounding like Harry Dean Stanton but uh who's also has a cameo in the movie but um you know they seem to have come to peace with the fact that that, that nothing means anything and they're just drifting because what else can they do so they're just going to keep racing until the the film strip breaks uh, yeah. whereas GTO is constantly, he's searching for meaning. And the reason I think that his performance is so poignant and the reason it, uh, it grabs us, the grab grabs the viewer is, um, no one, none of us are as, as cool as Taylor and Wilson in that movie, but I think we all feel like Warren Oates. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. I also like that you were bringing up uh, Heidegger, but when I watched it this latest time, I was thinking about Sartre and No Exit. So again, the existentialism, but in No Exit, you have three characters, and they're stuck in the same room, and they can't get out, and it's hell as other people, and they're just doing the same thing for eternity, and it kind of just uh, felt like a little bit like you're watching the, the road movie version of uh, No Exit. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, he 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 just layers it with such fascinating yes. levels of complexity because you also get the sense if he was offered a chance to live a life off the road, now he would say no, mm-hmm. that he would almost choose to continue to be lost, um, even though I mean, he it's he has no persona of his own. That almost seems to become his persona, um, and you you know to the point and you know to the point that even by the end of the movie, um. He starts adopting the persona of the two the two racers. Yep. He talks about how he's like, you know, he's got a souped up car. He's taking it on the road. He's going to. And uh, he just. It, it, you get the sense that. GTO himself, the person that he is, that is this weird prison that he has built for himself yep. to live within. And there's something fascinating about that. And the fact that he doesn't seem to want to leave by the end of the movie, he doesn't want to leave his prison. He's resigned to the fact, like even when he has the woman in his car for a little bit, this female hitchhiker that was with the the other guys for a little bit and then rides with Warren, 
you know, he has this like fantasy, almost like we'll take an exit essentially. And we'll, you know, we can do this and, you know, I really care about you and whatever, but he's resigned to the fact that, I mean, it's like play acting a little like what if game essentially. And then when she leaves, he isn't even that mad about it. It's like he expects it. Yeah. Yeah. And that is the great untrained actress, uh, Lori Bird, who also pops up in Foxfighter. Yeah. Um, and the cool thing about Warren Oates, uh, you know, I, his directors have great taste. He keeps working with the same actors a lot of the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, the guy that played his brother, Ben Johnson, in The Wild Bunch, Ben Johnson's going to be the heavy in Dillinger. Yeah. Uh, Purpose. Uh, Lori Bird, we're going to see her again in Cockfighter. Harry Dean Stanton, who he picks up on the road in this film, is going to pop up again in Cockfighter. Um, as I said earlier, the guy Donnie Fritz that played the and, the marauding and biker in yep. yeah, it, it's just um, it's much like GTO. Oates kind of builds this surreal family of actors around him in all the movies he's in, and they keep popping up. And there's something very comforting about seeing them all work together. Uh, or, you know, as I said, you know, he'd keep working with the same directors because they loved him. And I love this quote that Monty Hellman used where um, it's very similar to what uh, uh, what was said of him uh, by, uh, I'm having a brain freeze here, John Milius, uh, uh, where Hellman said, uh, my quintessential leading actor is Warren Oates because he had this really poetic soft side that was covered by a kind of macho Mm-hmm. And again, I think that that's, we keep coming back to this, you know, what, what is it about Warren? What is it about Warren? There's this kind of volatile, heady mix of machismo and bravado, but very clearly that machismo and bravado is hiding this kind of, there's a wound, there's something wounded about Warren Oates. Mm-hmm. Uh, even in his smile, there is a sadness to it. Um, and Hellman compared that to, of all people, Cary Grant, uh, where Grant had this mix of darkness, but uh, you you loved him all the same, even though there was a weird hardness and cruelty to his features at times. And mm, uh, that's a good to way me, that's putting another it. reason yeah. why I'm always following Warren across the screen and uh, watching him amble on with that toothy grin and following him along. There's there's um there's something about Warren Oates you kind of want to comfort. I think when you watch him, like you can tell he's in pain and you want him to feel better, and you're yes. hoping that he. Unfortunately, he almost in these movies never does. Uh, but uh, you, you're hoping for him. And it's interesting, uh, you know, uh, this film that we're talking about here, Tulane Blacktop, it was part of a, a group of films that uh, came in the wake of the humongous success of Easy Rider, yes. which was, uh, you know, co-written and produced and starring uh, Dennis Hopper, who you did a whole series on, mm-hmm. and uh, Peter Fonda. Uh, that made so much money, that film, uh, out of nothing, that Universal and Studios Terry Southern co-wrote, too. Yeah. Yeah. And so Universal Studios was like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get a bunch of these weird <laughs> hippie kids. We're going to give them total artistic control as long as they can uh, make a movie on a million-dollar budget. And so, you know, in the early 70s, there was this explosion of... Uh, counterculture films made by counterculture artists for very, very cheap. Um, uh, all, you know, Universal hoping that they would make a ton of money off this. And of course, this was one of financially one of the worst decisions ever, creatively one of the best. Um, because while it did generate stuff like American Graffiti, uh, it mm-hmm. also led to 
relative flops like uh or massive flops like the hoppers the last movie um other things like uh douglas trimble movie silent running yes um, which we covered on the podcast once yeah. yep and it led to Tulane Blacktop, as well as The Hired Hand, directed yes. by uh, Peter Fonda. And for me, film. Mm-hmm. The Hired Hand and Tulane Blacktop, they're, they're very much of a piece. Not just because they were both released in 1971, and not just because they are both part of this post-Easy Writer Universal Studios, God hoping we can just make money off these hippies. Uh, a clutch of films they're in both films these are uh, they are stories of people lost in america and kind of lost there's been the promise of america and now there's the very hard reality of america and these characters who are just kind of wandering around the landscape these figures in the landscape trying to find something that will imbue their life with meaning and once again once again, uh, in this film, you have Warren Oates trailing someone else, looking mm-hmm. for some kind of meaning in what is maybe one of the most gorgeously, gorgeously shot westerns ever made in America. Yeah, um, but well, I, this, I find it so Zygmunt, such a haunting, haunting yeah. follow up. Yes, I mean, Zygmunt uh, also shot McCabe and Mrs. Miller the same year, but he credits The Hired Hand as the movie that really gave him his start to show what he could do and he said westerns weren't shot like this and you know also the editing is very experimental and cool a lot of the early reviews or the contemporaneous ones talked about the early sequence in the movie and how it uh, layered over photography and slowed things down and it is just breathtakingly gorgeous this one was new to me i I might have seen it a few years ago, but I did not remember it. And I watched it twice in preparation to this because it's subtle and it's very leisurely paced, but uh, it's character driven. The actors, uh, again, you have a core of actors that really uh, make their characters very humane. It's it's tender. You have Warren Oates, you have Peter Fonda, who is remarkable in this. And I guess this is a film he was personally very proud of, even though he said he made not one dime off of it at all. And you have Verna Bloom, who is, you haven't really seen a character like this in a Western, uh, a woman who is left behind by her husband as he goes off. And uh, she's had relationships out of loneliness and also physical need with uh, men who have become her hired hands over the years and there's a reputation because it's a woman kind of just saying what she needs and what she wants she takes care of her kid and the property and yeah there's something really beautiful about it and this does have you you brought up like um sensitivity or uh like a poetic bravado this has a little bit of poetry in the way uh the film ends i think so I was glad that you kind I'd of encouraged of me. It, a lot of poetry. Yes. Um, I'm glad yeah, I mean, you it's, encouraged it. Uh, and yeah. I saw it. Yeah. You know, I kind of, I was, I was going to try to focus more on movies in which Oates play the lead, but mm-hmm. you, you really can't leave out the hired hand. Um, no, not at all. It's a rich, because, like I said, quiet turn mm-hmm. yeah especially if you're watching a stretch of films that begins with Tulane blacktop it's such a companion piece to blacktop 
Yes. And it's just a companion to what he does in uh, Blacktop because, you know, in Blacktop, he's playing this kind of this, this very over the top capital C character. He's playing a character, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and in this film, he gets to show in his performance um, as Arch Harris, the compatriot to Peter Fonda's Harry Collings, these two just kind of drifting cowboys. Um, he gets to play a much more lived in human being character you know he just he's playing a very real person not a not an exaggerated uh caricature um and he he's just he's another drifter he's someone who's just you know his character in this film all he really wants to do he just wants to see the ocean he wants to he wants to get to california and know what that's like Mm -hmm. while uh peter fonda's character just wants to go back home uh to the wife and child he abandoned seven years ago and yeah, as you mentioned, this is a very modern film mm-hmm. in its uh in 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 some of its uh, uh plot machinations and uh, plot elements, and that essentially one of the main sources of dramatic tension in the film is that he he comes to find that his wife um has uh, been having sex with uh the hired hands that she hired has hired throughout the mm-hmm. years on their ranch. And um it's a film that kind of deals just very frankly uh uh with sexuality and female sexuality and desire in a way that you weren't seeing a lot of move, a lot of no, especially in 19 early 1970s Um, or this era of existential filmmaking, navel navel gazing that kind of focused primarily on men. Yeah. And well, and it also kind of indicts the men in this movie. Yeah. This is where it makes it clear that Peter Fonda's character who gets all pissy, that his wife has been sleeping with other men while at the same time, you know, this guy let just left without a word seven years yeah. ago. When she had a kid and he just kind of bailed because he just wanted to roam the earth. He wanted to be a cane from Kung Fu and just roam the earth. Yeah. Um, or like uh, one of the characters in Tulane Blacktop, except it's yeah, a horse they, instead of a car. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think you see a lot of that in the films of this counterculture area, these, uh, uh, or era, uh, you know what? What I think that this was indeed the actual uh, the tagline for Easy Rider, where wasn't it? Uh, you know, uh, he, referring to Captain, the character of Captain America. You know, he went out looking for America and couldn't find it anywhere. And that's a a, a huge through line that seems to be running through uh, the generational schism of these films, yes. which is these these uh, characters coming of age in this generation who are looking for the country that was sold to them promised them and and not finding it and that bleeds through uh, a film set in modernity or then modernity like Tulane Blacktop and it happens here in the hired hand and in both films you get to see Warren as a as an actor as a, as an artist wrestling with that reality and in Tulane Blacktop he does it with a kind of uh, tragicomic bravado uh whereas in this film there is uh, more of a kind of muted uh what else can i compare it to almost something like uh if it wasn't a western you feel like this character would have been written about in bruce springsteen's nebraska uh a kind of a kind of weary acceptance uh you know he he wrote it film once yeah almost like sam shepherd in days of heaven too like yeah, yeah I, a little bit that was actually someone i was going to bring up a little later yeah um warren oates feels like uh, he's the less marquee. He's uh, Sam Shepard without the marquee. Movie yeah, there looks. you go. 
the leading mm-hmm. man looks like there's a there's a definite artistic kinship between these two men what they do on screen but i like what oates once said about the hired hand he said it's the america of what walt whitman means to me uh i'd respect peter fonda for no other reason than in this movie showing me the family as the ideal unit that's very close to me because i've gone through divorce um and he, the tenderness with which he speaks of the film, you see that in his performance. And that's something I also, I really like about Warren is you watch something, you know, like Dillinger or, you know, Alfredo Garcia and, you know, he can, he can do the big, the big business tough guy when he wants to. Uh, but to go back to what we said, that, that, that violent sensitivity, there's a, there's a sensitivity and a poetry to his performance in this film where once again, even though there are other, larger characters you can't take your eyes off of him and what he's doing as he's just playing this kind of regular guy uh mm-hmm. who gets embroiled in a plot that's out of his control and yeah. almost entirely um based on the actions of his best friend and as you said it's 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 gorgeous it's a it's definitely an acid western um in, i love the only... script though i mean it's alan sharp the scottish writer who yeah. later would write night moves he was an uncredited writer on year of living dangerously so he did in both of those films you do have women who are um very declarative in what they need and want sexually and um so he is someone who was kind of showing us um sides of people in his films that or his scripts that we weren't uh, seeing as a rule in this era. I also love the score. I mean, amazing score. Really um, haunting. Uh, yes, depressing. it is so uh, good. Yeah. Uh, score. Uh, Bruce the Hired Hand, again, yeah. um, I feel like of all the movies that we're going to, I feel like if anyone's listening to this podcast, uh, you know, most of them are probably Oates people. And these yeah. are all pretty well-known Oates movies. Um, but I would say that the hired hand is the one that if you're an Oates person, it might be the one that's seen the least. Mm-hmm. And I would highly recommend it. Arrow Video put out a fantastic Blu-ray a couple years back. It's, it's it's absolutely gorgeous to look at. Um, you've never seen a Western look like this, uh, with these very strange, slow devolves or devolves, dissolves and crossfades. Yes. And um strange stuttering slow motion effects. And this all sounds like it would be distracting, but I assure you it isn't. It's it's more a film that um, it's a film kind of like uh, Kubrick's Barry Lyndon. It's a movie that trains you in how to watch it and how to experience yes. it. And, and by that I mean it's a film that very purposefully is like, okay, we're gonna slow you down <laughs> before we even kick this movie off. We're just gonna slow shit down. Yeah, and it sneaks it up on you. you to kind of go go back to this era, you know, where we didn't all have glow boxes in our pocket. <laughs> well, they weren't they weren't thinking about that when they made it in seventy one. But it, you know, it, it trains you to go back to this era. You know, there's no television, there's no cars, there's no radio, there's not a lot to do but pl- sit around and play cards, which we see characters doing multiple times um yeah there are like surprising bursts of violence that happen but it's like off screen or you hear it i mean until later on but yeah it's one of those movies that the phrase spasms of violence works well there are spasms of violence throughout for the most part it's um it played better to me the second time too and i think for all of the reasons that you so eloquently uh put just then you know it it trains you to how to watch it when you're first watching it, you're you're wondering, is this uneven? Like, how does it work? But it's hypnotic. 
and you just kind of have to go with it. And the second time it's, yes, it's even more poetic because you see the way that they're setting up certain things that are going to pay off later. And it's very character driven. And yeah, it's a really lovely work. It's only 90 minutes too. So before you're like, oh my God, is this a three hour epic of just walking in slow motion? No, no, no. It's a, it's a 90 minute hangout movie that can be funny, can be deeply sad, very aching. And uh, even though, you know, it wasn't written or directed uh, by the same folks, uh, it it is very much of a piece and kind of a continuation, I I think. Um, And one of the reasons, another reason I really wanted to include it is, um, an outlier to, compared to some of the other ones. Well, too. Tulane Blacktop ends in a very, you know, it's a very existential vision yes. that ends in a very existential way that doesn't really, doesn't, it's a very much a portrait back of, of then of where we are now. And it doesn't really hint at any kind of future. Whereas the reason I like the hired hand is the hired hand kind of plays like, okay, after you've lived as these characters have lived in Tulane this Blacktop, is where you go. now what? Now mm-hmm. what? What happens now? And the, and as Peter Fonda's character realizes, he's like, oh well, after seven years of wandering, I think I kind of want to go back home. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a movie that suggests that for all of our our need to wander and our need to drift towards the Golden Coast and and find uh, the American mythos, you know, it's a it's a film that has a very kind of simple, as uh, Ode said, kind of a Walt Whitman type message of just like no what you're looking for is right here. It's at the house. It's in the house and you can have something special here. And it's, yeah. a, it's like I said, it's a very, it's very much a flip side to, uh, to Tulane blacktop. And it kind of answers the question of what, uh, that is posed by the, the, the very last seconds of Tulane blacktop, which is, well, what, what, what now, what do we do now? Yep. Um, the characters I, again, who were in so. no exit finally do exit and they, they were yeah. where they came. Yeah, and unfortunately, they find uh, that even in returning uh, f- uh, from whence you came, there are consequences to have yes, left. there are mm-hmm. there are consequences to having uh, left. And speaking of dealing and reckoning with consequences of choices that you make, uh, next up on my list is 1973's Dillinger, directed yes. and written by the great uh john milius um now some of these this is one of this is the the, the, hmm, how do i want to say this this is not a great movie it's not a great movie i i i chose it though uh because of the sheer murderously charming force of oates's performance I love his opening, like in oh. the bank before we even see him. Like, why are you smiling like that? It's like, I always smile like this when I see money or something. It's yeah. perfect. There's yeah. a the, the for those who haven't seen it, the movie opens with a point of view shot of a bank teller staring yes. directly out of their out of their little cubby area through this little grating, security grating, at this old lady who's who's counting her money and um this fella. Uh, this fellow in a hat behind her is smiling as, as she's counting, and it turns out it's John Dillinger. And then Dillinger pushes her aside, and he pushes into the window mm-hmm. to, uh, and he point and he pu- pulls his gun out to rob the teller. But the, the way the camera is positioned, he's robbing us. 
You yep. know, he's uh he's got that, you know, that great line, you know, uh, now nobody get nervous. You ain't got nothing to fear. You're being robbed by the great Don John Dillinger gang. Uh, that's the best there is. These few dollars you lose here today are going to buy you stories to tell your children and great grandchildren. Uh, this could be one of the big moments in your life. Don't make it your last. And the whole time his gun is on us. And so mm-hmm. it becomes uh, one of those films, kind of like Goodfellas. It's, it's, it's part of this great lineage of films that rip off the final shot of the great train robbery where yes. uh, justice justice d barnes it's about is the legend his gun right at the camera yeah and you know you know scorsese he famously uh said in an afi interview that he did that for goodfellas because um you know goodfellas and great train robbery are both representations of our pop culture's fascination with outlaws um yeah and that is this film is definitely, you know, to to borrow that from Scorsese, this film is definitely cut from the same cloth in that it is uh, shining a light on a, a very notorious American outlaw, the bank robber, John Dillinger. Uh, but in very, very John Milius, Nietzschean newsreel meets comic book uh, stylings, uh, you almost get the sense that Milius is way more entranced, um, with his borderline kind of fascistic, fascist portrayal of uh the G-man Purvis, who's got to ch- uh, chase down and That's kill. That's what he is. Yeah, like to the um, point of them coming in to gun somebody down right after they get married, or at the end, like he has to jump the gun and shoot himself. But I mean, it's it is, and he talked about he didn't want to do like a romanticization. He said that's what Bonnie and Clyde did, but he is in love with the legend. He's like, I don't want to make a psychological portrait or ask myself, oh yeah, this is why did John yeah. Dillinger become John Dillinger? Or, like, what happened to him? Like, I don't care. It's somebody creating their own legend just like uh the opening sequence that you just cited where he's robbing us and telling us you know these are going to be stories and we're still telling the stories that kind of um like it's a western and it's a crime movie because crime movies are essentially westerns and you have a remarkable cast i mean people like richard dreyfus just pops up uh you have ben johnson Yes. Yeah. Uh, you get Harry Dean standing again. Um, yeah, it's a lot of fun, but it's it's not a great film, but you're uh, entertained throughout. Yeah. I mean, it's not a bad film no. either, to be clear. It's an American International Pictures uh, AIP film. Uh, how it got me, you know, kind of a recurring thread here. Now, um, all of the films that I have selected uh, for our little our hang today, they're extraordinarily ambitious films made by auteurs. Um, and unfortunately, one of the things that usually can come with that is, uh, you know, in this in this industry is the auteurs have to take low budget deals to get their vision to the screen, um, just as uh, Hellman did to, had to take the one million to get to uh, Tulane Blacktop made. And just like uh, Peter Fonda had to take one million to get uh, the hired hand made. Uh, so too did Milius. You know, he was a very, very uh, on fire uh, screenwriter of his day in the 1960s, especially. Um, and he really, what he, you know, as as <laughs> to to use that, that that infamous phrase, you know, that so many writers do. But I really want to direct. Uh, you know, he really wanted to direct. And uh, as he put it, something like AIP, you know, which is usually basically you know releasing kind of um, drive-in fare and Corman pictures. And I don't say that as a pejorative. I love both. But, um, you know, they were basically releasing drive and fair and Corman pictures. Uh, They could never uh, afford 
a writer like John Milius, which is why he went to them and said, I know you guys can't afford me. I will mm-hmm. write you anything. I will write you any kind of movie you want if you let me direct it. And, you know, they gave him a couple of free choices. Types. Yeah. yeah, they gave him a couple, couple of genres and one of them, they, they, you know, like an outlaw crime movie. Yeah, um, with Pretty Boy Floyd or John Dillinger. And yeah, he and thought about it and realized that was the one. But Dillinger. I, I love that. It was a really smart play on his part because even though um, these are like contemporary classics, he sold his scripts for Jeremiah Johnson, Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean, and he thought they were mishandled. He didn't like what happened with his screenplays. And so this was kind of his solution, like, well, I'm going to make one myself and show that I can handle this. I can do character. I can do gunfights. And, you know, he has the Whenever you read an interview with Milius, you know, the guy thinks he's God, essentially, and it, it's mm-hmm. very entertaining. Yes. God if God's surf. He's God if God's surf. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Big um, Wednesday. Yeah. Now, you, you you know, you say that was a very, you know, sharp, clever, genius move of his, and it was, but the most genius move of all was casting Warren fucking Oates as John <laughs> Dillinger. Not only because... uh Warren Oates is one of the few actors to portray Dillinger that actually looks like John Dillinger. Like mm-hmm. he he d- disturbingly like looks a lot. You, you slap a pencil thin mustache on Oates and he is a dead ringer for Dillinger. But uh, the other thing about it is that he just he tears into this movie. He bites into it. He devours it. His performance subsumes the rest of the movie uh, mm-hmm. uh this is one of those movies where the performance is the movie yep um and i think that's one of the things that ultimately in a weird way hurts it uh not through any fault of oats um but every to really underline that thing that. yeah to, well the to really underline what i was saying earlier where you know whenever i would watch a movie and this 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 toothy yeah, and he's not wasn't on screen i'd be a little kind of like i'd be a little bored sometimes this is one of those movies where um, when Oates is not on screen, the juice shuts off for the film, mm-hmm. um, which is no slur against the other actors, especially Ben Johnson, who plays the G-Man Purvis. He's got to chase him down. Yeah. I love Ben Johnson, and Ben Johnson is actually very good in this movie. And uh, it's not that he's uh, – and his his scenes up kind of on his own are relatively short or just full of roughshod AIP carnage, so they're relatively exciting. But there's um there's a patch towards the end of this movie, the third act, where um Dillinger kind of just disappears for a while. Mm-hmm. And the movie kind of ambles along. And when you pull when you pull Oates off the screen in this movie, because he is so turbocharged with this toothy smirk and superhuman charm, uh I, when he's not on the screen, the movie it, it starts to crawl like it just it, this is one of those movies that it needs to be the camera needs to have him in frame uh, for the entire picture uh, the whole time for it to work. And every time he's off screen, the movie just doesn't work. We're searching uh, for him kind of like purposes. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a great way of putting it. And and while that might be a cool meta thing it isn't when you're watching it yes when you're watching it you're like oh god uh, fuck okay all right hey i'm watching (laughs) harry dean stanton that's cool that's cool hey i'm watching geoffrey lewis that's cool but can we get back to can we get back to oats now um and and, you know and, and that's the other thing too um 
just even the glee, though he, like of him in the cell carving the gun out of soap and you know just so much little fun. bits like that yeah, yeah. you can tell this he is, just enjoyed the hell out of it i think it was ebert who said there is there is a certain type of movie where you can tell every uh everyone on it during the making of it was having a blast having a party yep. and he said those films very rarely turn out well mm-hmm. uh this might indeed be one of those where you can tell you know all these 70s guys you know that we all love they're all hanging out and having a blast working together but it doesn't quite translate on the no. screen um but the other thing i want to say about his performance in this film is as i said earlier you know this is kind of milius doing his you know Nietzschean comic book Uberman Ubermensch thing um, where he's playing, as you said, you know, with the legend and, you know, Billinger and Purvis as these forces of good and, and evil in the American mythos, you know, gods and monsters. But what I love, even even in its bigness, even in its its outsized nature, Oates's performance wrenches uh dillinger away from that kind of gods and monsters exaggerated shadows storytelling and he makes the monster a man uh and i and again this is it's one of those things i feel like i'm watching it and i'm like who else could do this but warren um for all of milius's uh, intent to make these these men uh, legends um and gods and monsters uh oh it really keeps him a man keeps him a human being uh, a living, breathing person whose motivations you you understand, even if he's only speaking in, you know, big league quotes and taglines, uh, you still see him as a person. And again, that's the that's the magic of Oates in this movie. So not a great film, but it's not a bad one either. It's just of the five films we're talking about, it's kind of the one that doesn't really belong with the rest of these. Um, but it is of a piece with the rest of these and that it is a, is a deeply ambitious film made by an incredibly talented auteur and having the good luck to star, uh, Warren Oates. It just artistically, uh, it's reach exceeds its grasp in a way is not a problem for most of the rest of these other films. I kind of think it is a bit in the next one, uh, Cockfighter, which I think is, I love the character. It's fascinating, but I think overall it it kind of feels a little bit like a short story we're watching. And so this one rambled for me, but I think his character is just so interesting. And what uh, Oates is so great in the movie that it kind of holds your attention and it works. And it also sort of plays because you are dealing again with Monty Hellman like this sort of feels like it goes with uh, Tulane Blacktop and it also would work with Hired Hand like if you're having an Oats Festival I think uh, Cockfighter might be a good one to put on those nights yeah well I'm going to start this off by saying the poster and trailer tagline for Cockfighter just to set the tone <laughs> Frank Mansfield strolled into town with his cock in his hand, and what he did was illegal in 47 states. Yes. I mean, the best tagline right there. Yeah. yeah. And there were there were several for this movie. Um, <laughs> they had so, a lot of fun. Uh, yeah. You know, I've written about this movie, and uh, one thing I wrote um, for uh, music heads out there is um for both this is another film directed by monty hellman and yep. uh starring war notes uh for both better and worse this is if, if we can use a radiohead framing device 
Uh, for both better and worse, Cockfighter is the amnesiac to Tulane Blacktop's Kid A. It is a film that, and by that I mean it, it takes the themes, uh, certain themes and tropes and character types of its predecessor, and it kind of it fractures them and disperses them, makes them a bit more minor key. Uh, Rubik's cubes them a little bit, still kind of meditating on the same ideas, but in a more um, broken, fractious, anxious, uh, uh, subdued, like I said, minor key kind of way. Um, so yeah, I, Cockfighter would definitely be a fantastic uh, double feature with mm-hmm. uh, Two Million Blacktop, both because of the you know. Uh, another Hellman uh, Oates picture, because again, the, much like the the hired hand, um, they're looking at the same things. Although, you know, as I said, uh, Hawkfighter is kind of fracturing that view and yeah. breaking it up and remixing it a bit. Um, it's the story of, as the title somebody suggests, who's gone a cockfighter. Like, yeah, you, it's you a, almost as soon as you see him immediately, he's somebody who isn't speaking. He's mute on purpose. And as he's going through this thing, um, you know, you start thinking of the other movies that you watched and like he's been through all of this stuff kind of. Yeah. Well, yes. Um, see, the thing is about um, one of the great things about Oates. Uh, you know, f- f- I'm not gonna be. I'm not gonna blow your mind by telling you this, Jen. I don't think I'm telling anything out of school here. Uh, cinema is a visual art form. It's what we see, <laughs> and that you, fucking oats, man. Uh, I, I'm not gonna to 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 wax ineloquent. Fucking oats, man. He's got a mug on him. He's got a face of history. He's got this like he's, he's got been this, through the shit. Yeah, he's got this ugly, beautiful face, crisscrossed yeah. and cats cradled with these seams and lines and wrinkles mm-hmm. and scars. This is the face of a guy who's lived life. Yeah. Um, uh, as as I said earlier at the top of this, um, Oates himself has said he had a face that was like two two miles a country road. Mm-hmm. Damn, that's such a good line. Um, of course, Oates is the one that said it. he's so he's so great. Um, but he has a face <laughs> that has that comes with a history. Yes. And not to be one of those people that's like, you know what we don't have these days with our actors and our performers. Uh, but this is this is one of them. We don't let we don't let actors have faces anymore. Or real um, teeth. Or you yeah. know. Oh, oh my God. That, yeah. Oates has teeth like a horse, and it's part of why he's so fucking handsome. Whenever his lips un- unfurl that smile of his, God, I challenge anyone to watch any Oates movie, regardless of its quality, and not smile the first time he smiles on screen. He is it's so genuine and infectious. Cinema's greatest. Mm-hmm. Smiler, he is the best <laughs> smiler we have. Um, Roll over, Julia Roberts. It's it's time for. I'm Warren sorry, Oates. <laughs> sorry, Julia. I mean, I I I'd, I'd rather have Warren Oates smile at one of my jokes than Julia Roberts. <laughs> um, you know, I was watching I was watching that film I told you uh, Bar- Barquero recently, the where I yeah. said it was Lee Marvin, where it's really Lee Van Cleef, Lee Van Cleef versus Warren Oates, and it's like you've got the squinter versus the smiler, uh, the cinema's mm. greatest squinter versus cinema's greatest smiler, and that's what he is. He's our smiler. But to, we're 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 getting I'm I'm going off road as I tend to do. Let's get it back between the ditches here. Um, Cockfighter begins with yeah, uh, Cockfighter doesn't work. It doesn't work without Oates's face. No. Um, there's almost no other actor. You would need someone like um 
Nick Nolte in the nineties, <laughs> you or late nineties, early two thousands. Oh you need Nolte someone that has a face like well. that. Yeah. You need a face that's been through. It's a face that's been through hell and back. Mm-hmm. Um, but not only has it been through hell and back, it is not. What's the word I want to use? Not. You know who'd be good too is Defoe with that smile. Oh boy! Uh, a bit. Oh boy! Yeah. Well, Defoe, the thing, Defoe drifts so so perilously close to evil with his smile. I don't know, <laughs> but um, Oates has the face of someone who's been through hell and back, but he's yeah. still willing to try to be redeemed. That's the mm-hmm. he, having been to hell, he's not willing to give up just yet. Um, and that so works for this character who, um, as the title would suggest, is a cockfighter. And then something else. Let's get get, get this out of the way real quick. A little bit of uh, um, house cleaning. Um, I find a lot of what happens in this film, uh, both on the screen and what had to happen to get the film made morally repugnant. Um, yes. This is a film that features trigger warning uh, for anyone who's going to go watch this. Um, there is a very, very decent Shout Factory Blu-ray that I think is already out of print. Um, uh, there is a very uh, the that that transfer, which is decent. It's good. It's easy to look at. Uh, that is currently on Tubi. And if you want to go old school, Amazon has the shitty fucking VHS rip of this film. So um, anyone that wants to go see it, uh, you can see it in one of those avenues. Be trigger warned that um, there is actual cockfighting. Um, there are roosters that are that, that fight each other to the death. Uh, and that is shown in this film. Um, and if that is something that makes you uncomfortable and it is, it is something that makes me very uncomfortable, uh, you know, be forewarned mm-hmm. that the, that that real shit is included. Yep. Um, and it is the story of Warren Oates plays uh, Frank Mansfield. He plays a cockfighter. Um, and again, in of of this piece that we are seeing kind of recurrent in all of these movies, but it's most especially you know in Tulane Black Hop, as I said, that Martin Haydigger thing of life is meaningless. Therefore, you must choose something and commit yourself to it with a. a a brutal, relentless efficiency, as the the fellas do in Tulane Blacktop, just getting in races and driving and being devoted to their to their car. Uh, Frank Mansfield is dedicated to being the world's greatest cockfighter, um, and to the point that uh, we see in a flashback that uh, he ends up getting his his best cock killed um, on a silly drunken bet. And mm-hmm. uh, also loses the woman that he loves. And so he commits himself to a vow of silence. He commits himself to a vow of silence uh, until he uh, is ordained. There's an actual award you can win, you know, the best cockfighter. Um, he commits himself to a vow of silence. And uh, with the exception of a brief mid-film flashback and one little thing that happens at the end of the movie... Um, this is an entirely silent and wordless performance mm-hmm. by Oates, which is why I, you can't. I couldn't not suggest it, regardless of um, the moral quandaries yeah. that, that come up with the the animal abuses in this film. Uh, if we're going to talk about Warren Oates and his greatest performances, you can't not talk about Cockfighter. You just oh can't. no, he is um, yeah remarkable. And, but it. I will also say, God damn it, uh, maybe I'm sounding too equivocal here. Regardless of the some of the horrible things that happen on screen, um, I do think that this is a minor masterpiece. I think it is mm-hmm. uh, working in the same 
fields as hired hand, working in the same fields as uh, Tulane Blacktop, working in somewhat the same arena that we will see in Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, which is simply the the ultimate existential questions of what the fuck do I do with myself? What do I yep. do with myself? I'm an adult now. I'm a grown up now. I'm not a kid. I don't have an excuse anymore of not doing something with myself. So what do I do with myself? And, uh, you know, Frank Mansfield is like this, this wandering Ronin who has committed himself to this task, which is he's going to be the best cockfighter there is. And there's something that I find, um, one of my favorite types of thriller is the small stakes thriller where, you know, uh, something like, you know, like point blank where Lee Marvin is desperately killing all these people for kind of a tiny amount of money that he, that he got ripped off for, or, you know, you'll, it'll be a, a heist movie. That's about kind of almost a pathetically small amount of money that needs to be raised. Um, there's something to me, there's a, there's a kind of doomed romanticism to about making a movie about a guy who just wants to be the world's best cockfighter. You know, this ain't, this ain't exactly Rocky, you know? And mm-hmm. there's some, there's a, there's a kind of romantic sadness about that. Like we're going to make a movie about a guy who just wants to be the world's best hawk fighter and how kind of paltry and small that is and how paltry and small it is of his character to, to mute himself and to alienate um, the love of his life um, all in dedication to this extraordinarily horrible and meaningless and dubious title. That, that he needs to kind of um, validate himself and validate his life. And I don't know, there, there's something, there's something very hypnotic about that. And there's a kind of um that lends itself to the film. There's a hypnotic quality about this movie where I understand why anyone who's watching it would find it boring. It is kind of, it just kind of aimlessly goes from cockfight to cockfight and here and there, there will be a fist fight or an ax attack or a guy, there will be a a prolonged argument because a guy with a long fingernail jams his finger up his cock's ass to make it Mm -hmm. fight harder. And is that, is that an illegal move or not? Um, by the way, we should have like a little ringing bell for all the times that we say cock in this um, in this episode because <laughs> it's happening a lot. And I'm getting really self-conscious about it. But um, there is a, a lysergic hypnotic quality to this film. And I think partially that is because it's being made by, uh, by a master at the height of his powers. And that would be Monty Hellman. Um, and it's starring a master at the absolute height of his power. And that is Warren Oates. This is a guy giving a performance where he doesn't talk for 90 fucking minutes and he's in every goddamn scene. And even when I wanted to, uh, because of the horror that was happening on screen, I, I can never look away when it's on. I just can't look away. It's it's hypnotizing to me. But um, I understand if, yeah. as, as you said, when you're watching, you're kind of like, boy, is something going to happen anytime soon? Or yeah, are we just it's... hanging out? I felt like it was a little long and it, it did kind of go from cockfight to cockfight. And we are saying, I mean, guys, be forewarned before you go into this movie, you're going to get a lot of cocks and asses. And I'm sorry, I had to make the joke because yes, Travis brought it up. But, uh, but you know, the performance is brilliant. You can't really talk about the early 70s without it. And I can see why I included it. But I think um, probably greatest performance would be 
the next movie for sure, which is uh, one very dear to your heart. So I'm going to let you mm. take it away. Yes. I love how you very quickly swept us out of cockfighter. Like you're done with cockfighter already. I can tell. <laughs> yeah, I enough know. with the cocks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I just, if I could just say one of the, I just oh, want to yeah, say one other thing about cockfighter. Yeah. Um, um, just a fun little bit of trivia and if you if you know oats you probably have heard this before but if you haven't it's 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 a funny you know all of these films were these kind of you know low budget affairs you know warren wasn't in a lot of big budget uh blockbuster films mm -hmm. um and the funny thing about this is uh, roger corman uh bumped into this book at a in a wire book rack at an airport and he just picked it up and he saw that its title was cockfighter he read the back uh cover copy and he decided to buy the rights to make the movie right then and there. Sight on, you know, he never read the book, didn't read the book. And he just said, with a title like this, if we can't sell this movie, we're doing something wrong. <laughs> uh, and what, what Charles is funny Wilford. is he, yeah. what it, what's funny is that he's later joked that uh, they did it somehow to do something wrong because this is the only movie of his that mm -hmm. never made any money. Um, it, it, it went, he, he released it as cockfighter. It had a great trailer that didn't work. He retitled it born to kill. And had Joe Dante, you can find it um, on uh, on YouTube. He had Joe Dante recut a 60-second yes. trailer called Born to Kill in which he worked in all of this footage from other Corman movies. There's car chases and explosions and police chases, none of which happened, by the way, in Cockfighter. Um, but to to give you the sense that these things were going to happen. And then he had... Um, he had uh, Dante essentially cut together a highlight reel of other Corman movies with, you know, fighting and fucking and, and shooting and chasing and explosions and car chases. And he just it was like just little this little 60 second montage of other Corman movies. And he told Dante, you know, there's a scene where uh, War Notes lays down in bed in, a, in Pock Fighter. Cut this in right there and it'll just be like a dream. And that way we can put it in the trailer. Uh, like all these funny Corman tricks like that. Um, no matter what, people just did not go see this movie. Um, there is another it, interesting factoid that I think film buffs would love, which is who shot the film. Uh, you have Nestor Almendros, who shot uh, Romero's movies. First, uh, first American film, right? Yeah. He shot Days of Heaven later. He shot Truffaut's Wild Child. But yeah, this is somebody who shot like Claire's Knee and My Night at Mods. And uh, when he came over to America, he made Cockfighter. Yeah. He must have wondered if he had taken a yes. his career, had taken a turn. As he's <laughs> like, what did he's, I do? You know, he's in a barn. He's in a barn. Um, yeah. You know, shooting Harry Dean Stanton, uh, whispering in War Notes' ear about uh, Laurie Bird while, you know, Steve Railsback is sticking a finger in a cock's ass. Yeah. And uh, Ed Begley Jr. is chasing war notes around with a goddamn <laughs> In those axe. overalls. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So this is definitely a, a Hicksploitate. I think you could you could get away with calling it this could, a Hicksploitation yeah, movie if you wanted to. Yeah. It's not what its goal was. I mean, that was certainly Corman's goal. And this is definitely one of those, mo these, those movies where, you know, Corman was looking to make a piece of exploitation and... Um, uh, Hellman wanted Monty Hellman wanted to make a people. Monty yeah. Hellman wanted to make a work of art. Yeah. Um, there's a great uh, there's a great Kurt Russell line about um, a movie that he uh, that he was trying to make with uh, the exploitation producer Dino De Laurentiis, and he has this great line about why it didn't work out well. It's like uh, Dino was looking to make a deal. I was looking to make a picture. And you very much get the feeling that uh, that that was kind of the thing going on here. Is you know Corman just wanted to make a deal. 
uh, Monty Hellman wanted to make a picture. Now I will, this will probably be one of the few parts of the pod where you and I disagree and your mom's ears will perk up as I, as I, <laughs> as I attack you for it. But um, I, I would say that um, this is a minor masterpiece. Um, yeah. You, yeah. I think it That's is a film that is, yeah. I, well, I'm going to repeat myself because I want people to, I, I don't want you to scare people away from this, Jen. Um, no, listen to Travis. Uh, and it goes, like you said, uh, with his earlier films for sure. Yeah. I, I think it's a film that you will like more if you watch to, if you watch it by itself, just it in might a vacuum. Be, yeah. I think there are people who are going to dig it. And I think there will be a lot of people who are like, what the fuck was that? Uh, yeah. I do think if you watch Tulane Blacktop, at the very least watch Tulane Blacktop, and then watch this, it'll become something that is more than just a curio with an all-timer, fantastic lead performance. It becomes a, a continuation uh, um, of the exploration of the themes of Tulane Blacktop. Mm-hmm. But yes, that does that does lead us to, um, I mean, regardless of what Oates' feelings are about this movie, which were very conflicted. I and regardless of the fact that um he gave an all-time over performance in Cockfighter uh with with an almost entirely silent role. I don't know how anyone can watch all of the films of Warren Oates and not walk away saying that his greatest performance is in the sad and shambolic and beautiful and romantic and devastating masterpiece that is Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Directed by Sam Peckinpah, um, there's well, so he much. Plays Peckinpah. Yeah, yeah. He basically plays. This is one of those films. Uh, there's got to be a name for this, where um, the director gets an actor to basically play them to to play a self portrait of a little bit. Yeah, you know, because I mean, you know, Nolan does it, and all his. You know, you look at something like, uh, you know, how like every Nolan movie, the protagonist. Uh, with the exception of maybe Oppenheimer has like the Nolan haircut and dresses like Nolan. Um, uh, the sex lies and videotape, uh, essentially you have uh, yeah. a wearing black and, and yes, exactly. Or how, him. um, yeah. the fact that, uh, Jeffrey Beaumont dresses exactly like David Lynch in blue velvet. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the director surrogate genre, we'll call it. Uh, this is, um, Jesus, um, said so much about this on your show before and I've, I've written about it talked about it um so i'm trying to think of what exactly to say i'll just basically it is sam peckinpah director of the wild bunch uh and so many so many other amazing films um had lived a hard life full of booze and drugs and unstable relationships with women did not treat people um carefully no and um this is kind of his last masterpiece where you could feel the transmission beginning to to shift um, and get a little shaky. The artistic transmission in his brain, uh, mm-hmm. it was getting a little bit harder to rev up and get uh, keep the, the enterprise between the ditches. And this is the movie where everything starts to slip out of gear, but not before he makes a masterpiece. Um, or not until he finishes this masterpiece. Things get pretty shaky after this in his oeuvre. But this is a film, essentially. Um, it's a very squalid genre movie, um, much like Cockfighter, that also, like Cockfighter, this director elevates to a level of art. It's the story uh, uh, of a guy named Benny, played by Warren Oates. He is a small-time bar owner and piano player in Mexico. Uh, he has a sex worker slash singer for a girlfriend. and 
comes to find out that there is this uh, big-time uh, crime lord, El Jefe, whose teenage daughter gets knocked up by local cad, Alfredo Garcia. And El Jefe says, I will give anyone a million dollars if they bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia. And so it's not just a clever name, people. Not it actually just a, is, is so, the plot. Uh, yeah. uh, trademark Wayne's World. So it's not just a clever name. <laughs> um, so uh, what El Jefe doesn't know what El Jefe does, can't know, but what Benny does know is that Alfredo Garcia is already dead. And Benny knows this because Alfredo Garcia was sleeping with Benny's girlfriend um, because he is so kind of uh, emotionally removed from her and not careful with his love for her that she has a tendency to stray because he won't propose to her. He won't marry her. He doesn't treat her very well. Um, and so she sees other men um, outside of her business life. And, um, so he knows this. And so he thinks he's going to kind of get one up on these bad men who, who are offering money for Alfredo's head. And he's like, well, I'm just, what I'll do is I'll just go, I'll dig Alfredo up. I'll cut his head off. He's already dead. What's a head matter. I'll cut his head off and I'll bring it back and I'll cash it in. Um, and what's, what's sad is they don't even offer him the full million. They offer him like $10,000. Um, which interestingly enough is the same amount of money that all the men die for in the war in the, the wild bunch. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, so basically it becomes this fever sleaze brain busting psychotronic road movie in which he gets his girl Alita and they, it becomes a road movie where they're driving across Mexico to the, to the, to the, to the graveyard where Alfredo Garcia is buried. And along the way, everything goes wrong. Absolutely. Everything goes wrong. And we discover that Benny, for all of his bravado, the reason I think that he is the best Warner's performance and the ultimate Warner's performance is Benny is the accumul Benny is the accretion, accumulation, and climax of everything that we've talked about that Warren does well. He is a man who has been through hell. He is world weary. He is funny. He is charming. He is angry. He is dangerous. He is scary. He is disappointing. He is saddening. He is never not charming. He is handsome. He is ugly. He is also deeply insecure and makes deeply stupid fraught decisions because he desperately wants to find his place in the world. He wants mm -hmm. to locate his place in the world. And he thinks this money is going to do it. And he is willing to risk everything to get it. And will only, unfortunately, by film's end, realize that he had everything he needed and mm -hmm. that the risks were relatively pointless. But much like Frank and Cockfighter, um, like Archie and the Hired Hand, like GTO in Tulane Blacktop, and like Dillinger in Dillinger, he can't see that. He can only see that in which he is in pursuit of that he thinks will give his existence meaning, not realizing that he... It already he the, all the meaning in the world he's ever going to have is already right here, and um, it is very much a self conscious self excoriation by director Sam Peckinpah. You get the feeling that Peckinpah is essentially crucifying himself for very similar mistakes that he made in his life. Yeah, yeah, it's a little um, bit like uh, Treasure of Sierra Madre, except very it's much about, like yeah uh, about also starring our buddy Bogart. Yeah. 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 Uh, and uh, what does it mean to be a man or, you know, what you you think it means or the what you think you have to do uh, violently, physically, like the machismo um, idea and how kind of dumb it is and empty it is uh, by the end. Yes. Yeah. It's a film about a guy who 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 is small. He's small. Mm -hmm. um, 
And he hates when he feels small and when other men make him feel small or when his own woman makes him feel small. He flares up and makes the stupidest fucking decisions possible in any yep. given situation. But um, it also it is a it is a film in which carries, I feel like, the spiritual war cry, battle cry, declaration of Peckinpah's work, but of also of of Oates's work and Oates's career and Oates's life. There's a scene in which he's trying to barter a deal with the El Jefe's money men in this um this hotel room, this very gaudy piss yellow hotel room that's this kind of cheap way station of power for these men. And you know, uh Benny shows up in this embarrassing white suit and garish tie and shirt. And he's just he he looks like a fucking loser. And uh, <laughs> one of the men call him out on it, you know. Benny is doing that Oates thing where he's trying to be real big business, bravado, brag about his abilities and his his virility and his power. And, you know, you want the man, I can get him. Don't you worry. I got it. You know, um, you want him, you want dead or alive. I got him. Uh, and one of the money <laughs> men just like rolls his eyes and, you know, Benny's trying to kiss their ass this whole time. Uh, rolls his eyes at Benny's like, he looks like a loser. And before the guy can even hit the period at the end of the sentence, he looks like a loser. Oates lashes, even though he's not raising his voice, it feels like a roar when he lashes out and he says, nobody loses all the time. Mm-hmm. And that to Quintessential me, Warren Oates line. The e pluribus unum. Of Warren Oates. Yes. Nobody loses all the time. And god damn, it makes me want to cry saying it out loud. That is, I think that that Warren Oates is the patron saint of anyone who wants to cry when they he, hear that line, when they think of that scene. If that if that kind of if that kind of line, if that kind of aphorism, if that touches something in you, sets something alight within you, if the stars in your chest ignite when you hear that, then He's your saint. He's your person. He's your magnetic north. And he sure as shit is for me. Nobody loses all the time. And I feel like this is a life. This is a life that makes us all feel a lot like Warren Oates' face a lot of the time. And to go through life wearing that face and the experiences that would give that face to you, to be able to do to weather that and then to look up and say nobody loses all the time. I don't know. That's something. That's 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 magic. Um, that's real. That's real. Uh, to to be ineloquent again, as I as I sometimes say, uh, that is uh, that is no fuck around shit. Um, that that's something magic and real and wonderful. And that 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 is what is magic about. Bring me that about Frito Garcia, but more specifically, also, that is what is magic yeah. about about Warren Oates to me. Is that regardless of where his characters end up, regardless of the fact that you know. His legend is secure with movie people, but, you know, his career was never like a blockbuster career. He was just a working actor, which was fine, as he often quoted his friend Ben Johnson. He's like, hey, acting beats working for a living. But, you know, um, he never got to stratospheric success. Um, and and so that line, nobody loses all the time, you know, regardless of what happened to his characters, how often they died or ended up worse than when they began or the fact that his career did not garner him the Oscars and the accolades and the attention and the riches that, uh, and the other roles, the future roles that he deserved. Something about that line. Nobody loses all the time. 
uh, he crafted for us and created a magic that is impossible to look away from a toothy, wild grinned, eyebrow dancing body of work that, that that means so much and will continue to mean so much to the people that seek out his movies. And I, I highly recommend that anyone who is listening to this, um, a lot of his movies are kind of fly by nighters. They're movies that people haven't heard of. Uh, they are I would films like to that... jump in real quick because how dare think... you? How dare you? How dare you? No, no, please, <laughs> please, because I'm just gonna keep going. Um, what you were saying, nobody loses all the time because it kind of it's a great bookend to the movie that opened this with Tulane Blacktop. So you said something really brilliant then, which is we want to think we're James Taylor or Dennis Wilson, or you think you want to be them, but we actually deep Oates. down feel like Warren Oates. And so the bookend of that is nobody loses all the time. And so this is kind of, uh, they feel like of a piece um, and that the character, it, it's something about Warren and what he brings to these roles that I think is identifiable or we can all, even if we don't agree with his characters, we understand where they're coming from because it's deeply yeah. human and it's in all of us. Yeah. They're all motored by that yeah. phrase that I said earlier. Yes. Um, what was it? Oh, yeah. Uh, I, a violent sensitivity. I feel yeah. like both Oates himself and each and every one of his characters, no matter how big or how small, they were all motored and powered and electrified and driven and haunted and obsessed by a violent sensitivity on a scale that I don't think we have quite seen in the same way before or since. You see similar stuff. Like I said, Bogart had it. Mm -hmm. uh, as Hellman said, Cary Grant had it, but um, I don't think we've seen the likes of him ever since. And I don't know that we ever will again, um, which is why I would, again, you know, although most of his movies were not huge, you know, for every wild bunch, there's 15 movies like, you know, uh, Barquero or uh, the very underseen, probably rightfully so, uh, neo-noir Chandler um or the the cowboy comedy kid blue but um i would i would i would ask that if 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 you don't know oats well and you're curious about this go look up his filmography and, and just start picking some at random even you know 92 in the shade race with the devil rancho deluxe dixie dynamite brings job by fucking william Freakin. race with the devil um, was great you had us oh that my god that, that's such a that, yeah that's such a fun movie uh even something you know like the border which does not we work did that one as too. a movie yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, uh even something like the border which does not work go watch it go watch philip kaufman's the white dawn uh or as jen said go rewatch badlands and realize oh shit that's warren oates playing the dad i totally mm -hmm. forgot he was in this um blue thunder he's great blue thunder, yeah yeah he is an essential component to uh late 20th century or second half of 20th century filmmaking he's an essential component I think uh, this is not hyperbole. It's not me. It's not letterboxed kid silliness. Um, when I say, and no offense to letterboxed, but uh, uh, there, I think sometimes there is a tendency for film Twitter uh, to to overhype someone that they just discover or something like that, yeah, yeah. and um, to to kind of build up a a popularity cult around kind of an off kilter choice. I'm not doing that when I say. Uh, Warren Oates is the greatest actor who ever lived. I say that because I truly believe Warren Act Warren Oates is the greatest actor who ever lived. And he is never inauthentic. He is never unreal. 
And when you watch his films, you you I think you're going to agree uh, that Warren Notes uh, never lost all the time. He just he didn't. And he nope. you put him in something bad. He's the best part about it. You put him in something amazing. He's still the best part about it. Uh, he, you can't take your eyes off of him. And uh, you'll never not smile <laughs> the first time you see him amble into a scene in a movie. And, he, and then he smiles. You're going to be feeling like a million bucks the rest of the day. There was once a God that roamed the earth and his name is Warren Oates. Yes. Amen. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Travis, for preaching the gospel of Warren. I've known you, I think, four years now. And since the beginning, this has been your guy. So, yes, Travis, I can uh, vouch for the fact that, no, he isn't just doing this because he's trendy. This is his dude, along with Elliot Gould, of course. But, yes. That is true, but I, I I think Warren has the oats on my man. Warren, Warren is. <laughs> do you have hands an oats tattoo best. though? Do I don't? I I do have a ghoul tattoo. One day, yes. one day I'll get. One day okay. I'll get the. There's too many. There's too many great oats faces. Uh, too true. many uh, characters and faces to pick just one. But I'll probably you want end Benny up with, with the peck and paw shades, though, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I'll probably end up with a Gar- uh, Alfredo Garcia tattoo at yeah. some point. It it seems inevitable. Um. But yeah, thank, thanks, Jen, for having me. And again, I of just, course. Uh, I cannot recommend enough. People go out and watch a Warren Oates movie. Almost doesn't matter which one it is. Uh, or hey, you can go get the one that I'm on. Um, the Imprint Films uh, yes. release of Bring Me the Head of, of Alfredo Garcia. I'll be a whore one more time and mention that. I would also be remiss if I did not mention Susan Campo's biography. Excellent, excellent, excellent biography. Okay. Uh, of Warren Oates called Warren Oates, A Wildlife. It is the only biography of the man that I'm aware of. And mm. um, as someone who is writing a book on another filmmaker, it, it ain't easy. And no. she does a really great job of making his life compulsively readable. And so if you dig Warren, if you dig his movies, and you're looking for just a little bit more, a little more oomph, uh, check out uh, Warren Oates, A Wildlife by uh, Susan Campo. It's really great. Perfect. Well, thank you again, Travis. You're going to have to either come back for more oats or choose another topic because it's always good talking to you. Well, we need to do back into the 70s with Warren Oats. We definitely need to, yes. to put a put a pin in this. Okay, sounds good. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. 
This is Jan Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.